Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about marketing, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has been called one of the best minds in marketing by the Marketing Journal. But before I introduce you to Christopher Lockhead, a number one Amazon bestselling author and the godfather, get this, the godfather of something known as category design. I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that gives you tips, tricks, and insights into careers gleaned from some of the best of the best, like today's guest. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my manic marketing macchiato lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated (laughs) brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Christopher Lockhead, entrepreneur, former chief marketing officer and advisor to over 50 venture backed startups. Chris was a three-time Silicon Valley CMO at Mercury Interactive, Scient, and Vantive. This is what Christopher writes in his About section on his LinkedIn profile. I'm a dyslexic paperboy who got thrown out of school at 18, so with no other options, I became an entrepreneur. Then a three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO I believe if you're lucky enough to make it to the top of a mountain, you should throw down a rope. So that is what I'm trying to do. He's got two super popular and highly ranked podcasts, one of them called Follow Your Different, named Best Business Podcast by Podcast Magazine, and Lockhead on Marketing. And he's co-author of two top 1% business books and a top 1% business newsletter. The books are called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets, and Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different. And he's co-author of the Category Pirates newsletter, one of the top subscription-based newsletters on Substack. Here is what some noteworthy publications and people have said about Chris. He is a human exclamation point, wrote Fast Company magazine. He is a quasar, said NBA legend Bill Walton. And according to The Economist magazine, I mean, The Economist is like the creme de la creme of international affairs magazines, off-putting to some. 
And in case you think any of this is off-putting to Christopher, think again, because his LinkedIn headline features that last quote that he's off-putting to some. And P.S., if you're like me and you had no clue what a fucking quasar is, (laughs) I Googled it. It means a massive and extremely (laughs) remote celestial object emitting exceptionally large amounts of energy and typically having a star-like image in a telescope. I'm I'm, what the fuck is a quasar? So look, Chris, I have my sunglasses on. I lied. I forgot to bring my sunglasses, but I need my sunglasses just in case I get blinded by the Christopher Lockhead Quasar. Chris, welcome to Time for Coffee. (laughs) Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I've got my giant Yeti mug here full of fresh coffee. And I have to tell you, One of the greatest gifts in my life since becoming an author and a podcaster was meeting the legend Bill Walton. And he's the quasar. (laughs) I had to Google it too, by the way. (laughs) He said, quasars even. He was, he said, what? He was, you know, have you ever had an interaction with Bill by chance? No. So he's just over the top, fun, creative. Zany for sure, tells incredible stories. He knows everybody in sports. He knows everybody in music. He was on a rant one time and when he called me a quasar, <laughs> he just laughed, wrote that down. So I've got to figure out, did he just insult me or what did he say? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So do quasars drink coffee? They do. And they drink a lot of alcohol too, it turns out. <laughs> what about pirates? But definitely pirates uh, are, have been known to uh, consume libations, yes. I'm guessing it would be black with whiskey. I am a whiskey guy. I know most pirates drink rum and I do like rum rum. very much, but I'm a whiskey guy. Yeah. So you got me right. Generally, if it's brown and alcoholic, I'm interested. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the other reviews of your podcasts, which I highly recommend and had So much fun binging on getting ready for this interview today, Chris. Notes that you use profanity needlessly. And I want to tell you, initially I was thinking, whoever wrote that, whoever wrote that review was a total wanker. But then I thought, you know what? It is true that profanity is needed. I mean, it is Because there are just times when there is no other word that accurately describes someone or something than to say they are a fucker or when something really bad happens to say fuck rather than you (laughs) or fuck you or darn it or dang it. You know, it has to be fuck. It kind of has to be fuck. Yeah. There are some French Canadian swear words I really like. You know, I when I escalate to as a guy who grew up in Montreal, Canada, when I start swearing in French Canadian swear terms, that's also very significant. But there's no word like the word fuck. It is it is the most versatile word. It's the most satisfying word. It's a word that can express virtually anything. Everybody understands it. Everybody understands the context you mean it in when you say it. You don't have to explain to somebody if it's a fuck, Andrew, you're awesome. Everybody understands that. Or if it's a fuck you. Like, so yeah, it's a magic word. It is. And you have like a visceral 
feeling. It's it's both cathartic. Yes. And uh, it's like you're painting a rhetorical picture with it. And I get the sense, Chris, that profanity is really important to you. It's kind of like a verbal punctuation mark. Yeah, very much so. You know, it's not a choice I made. I didn't grow up. My my parents aren't big swear people and neither were my grandparents or so that, you know, I'm an anomaly in my family in many ways. And I guess that's just another one. And yeah, ever since I was a little kid, I've sworn since I was, I don't know, five, probably. (laughs) I like it. It works for me. Well, I think what's even more impressive about you, Chris, than the fact that you have used profanity since you're five is the fact that you've been able to cultivate this I don't give a fuck mindset. Yes. And truly, I aspire to that. I really do. I want to not give a fuck about what other people think. And sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't. But I'm curious if we were to rewind the clock back to when you were 18, what year would that have been? Some quick math. Sorry. Uh, I'm just, I have dyscalculia and dyslexia. So math is going to be a challenge. So I was what born year were you in born? 1968. Okay. I, I'm just going to have to do it here on my. So in notepad. 88, I'm 20. So in 87, 16, I'm 18. 86, I think. 87, I think. Cause it, 87. It, okay. Yeah. Okay. So 1987, did you give a fuck about the fact that you were you kicked out of high school? Is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was in, in it, it's a little confusing, but the net of it is because because of the way the education system works it in Quebec, Canada. But the net of it is I was in the equivalent of what in the United States would have been grade 12. And I got thrown out of grade 12 and they suggested that maybe I shouldn't come back. <laughs> what happened? I mean, I know your LinkedIn profile highlights your education period and you call it your higher ed time having been the school of hard knocks. So maybe it was prior to that. Or you could say you majored in rock and roll, whiskey, girl chasing, and then you got a PhD in strategery. So is <laughs> <laughs> that really what my LinkedIn profile It does. Did you not oh, write that? Yeah, of course. But I wrote it a thousand years ago. I don't read my own LinkedIn profile. That's pretty good shit right there. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. So what was it? You were clearly incredible in those categories. Was it the actual school work that you kind of fell down on the job? Yeah. So I, I think this is might be illustrative for some folks. So I have four or five different, what today we call learning differences, which I appreciate because if you tell me I have a learning disability, first, I'll tell you to go fuck yourself. And second of all, you might have to go see a doctor because you have a broken jaw. And actually what I would say, and this is, I speak to a lot of younger folks today who have learning differences, dyslexia, dyscalculia, ADHD, executive function disorder, all of which I have. And one of the things I, that is normally how I start Andrea is by saying, now look, it's not fair to be mean to the normal brain kids. It's not their fault. They don't have the gifts that you have and you have to be kind to them. And so uh, the first thing is, you know, I have all these things. And their differences, not disabilities. And as Pink Floyd told us so many years ago, 
the education system. And I don't think much has changed. Maybe you'll tell me we've had some leading education experts on my podcast. So it doesn't sound like a lot has changed, but my life as a student, it was never caught. And so I get thrown out of school at 18 and all kidding aside, Andrea, what was going on was how can I be so fucking smart? I knew I was smarter than like most people. I mean, to be radically immodest and at the same time, so fucking stupid. And so if you take a kid who has those, those differences and you say, you sit here and you read or you do math problems or you do whatever the fuck, you, you're not going to get me to sit down for six or eight hours. You go Anyway, in, in grade three, I won an award for being the most mature kid in the class. And in grade four, I spent the entire year in the principal's office for bad behavior. And so the reality is math was over for me in grade three and reading is an extraordinarily hard thing. Writing is an extraordinarily hard thing. It's taken decades of work to be able to write the way I'm able to today. And I continuously work on it. One of the fun things about having a newsletter is you're writing every week. Now, I have two partners. That helps a lot. And with all my books, I've had partners. So as a dyslexic, it would be very challenging for me to write all by myself. So I guess my point is the following. The education system is designed to produce hamburgers in the way that McDonald's produces hamburgers. Amen. You show up, then you say, hey, man, I'd like a pizza. And they're like, well, we don't do pizza. Was that your experience, Andrea? It wasn't my experience when I was your age, Chris. But I will tell you, I'm the mother of a 17-year-old who at age five was diagnosed with ADHD, executive functioning, apraxia. And when we were in the developmental psychologist's office who had done the testing and she started to describe our son to us using these terms, I thought, wow, that sounds an awful lot like me. And although I did well in school, I remember, Chris, when I was brought back from Asia to be CNN's State Department correspondent, and suddenly I had to do something I had never had to do on a daily basis, which was to come out of the State Department briefing every day and distill what the top three things were that came out of that, and then play it back live in 45 seconds or a minute, I struggled immensely. And I also had to produce my script super fast. And I found my brain was jumbled. So I had to figure out a system on my own. And I totally relate to you. I totally relate to you. And I agree with you that our education system is fucked up because we celebrate those who fit into a box and we ostracize or other those whose brains work differently. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. And to put a fine point on it, I've gotten to know in the last couple of years, uh, an extraordinary man named Ted Dintersmith. And Ted was one of the leaders of venture capital on the East Coast in Boston. He was a senior partner at a very well-respected venture fund called Charles River Ventures. Anyway, he got to a point in his life where he wanted to do something different and he had passion around education. And he's the author of a legendary book. Anybody that cares about education, I highly recommend this book. I enjoyed it very much. It's called What School Could Be. What Ted did, Andrea, was he went to schools in every state in our nation. 
And he studied the good ones and the bad ones and the ones in between. And he tried to get a picture of the quote average American school and synthesize all of it from a fresh perspective, not as, as an educator or as an administrator, but as an entrepreneur, as somebody who creates new value. And he teaches us a lot. But the big thing that I take out of Ted's learnings and teachings are the children that do well are the ones with the most agency. And it turns out that's true for adults too. And so, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think what my interpretation of what Ted is saying is, is the following. Yes, of course, there's a baseline set of things we want all people to learn, some basic math, some history, although history's in debate right now, why I don't know, but we can talk about that if you care. But you know, there's some basic things we want people to learn, geography, where, where is the Sudan, that's nice to know. And so, so yes, there's a base set of sort of functional skills and learnings that we, I think, all agree generally are good things to learn. And beyond that, what Ted's saying is give people agency. So a child who has a strong desire around math and science, don't give them an hour every other day in that. That's ridiculous. If a, if a child in grade three is, is showing, showing tremendous interest, let them triple down on math. Maybe they don't need to go to the next geography class or whatever it is. And so the lack of agency and the sort of stamping of, we put the same thing on every burger. You and I are different people. Every human being's different, right? And so to think that we could mass produce human beings with an assembly line model is asinine. And in some cases, it does tremendous damage. And we need to change that. Here in California, you may be aware, in order for a child with learning differences to get things like extra time, to get coaching and support and things along those lines, they have to be classified as fucking disabled. Exactly. Having some kind of a, a disease or some kind of a disability. And to that, I say, fuck you. I do not have a disability and neither does anyone else who's like me and neither does your son. What's, what's his name, Andrea? Aiden. Aiden. We have different brains, just like people have different bodies, just like people have different skin types, just like people have different fill in the blanks. We have different brains and there's some consistency amongst the kinds of differences that we have and some of the strengths that we tend to have and some of the weaknesses that we tend to have, depending on which type of different brain we have. That might be why you sort of had that experience you had when the psychologist was walking you through stuff and all of a sudden you began to see yourself differently. And so, and certainly your son. And so the problem is this, we've created a one size fits all for education. And as it relates to career, we've created a one size fits all. That's bullshit. So speaking of careers, you're thrown out of school at age 18. What were your early career experiences and how did you start? So my mother worked as a, essentially an administrator, a, a sort of like a, a, an assistant to the head nurse in the major hospital in, or one of the major hospitals in Montreal. And so when I was about 16 or so, she got me a job there as an orderly. And so by 18, I was thrown out of school and kind of all I had was that job. So I did that job and I worked in a working class neighborhood in Montreal, the roommate and as you can tell by the guitars behind me, I love music. And I had been in bands since I was a kid. Uh, we actually got our record deal when I was 14. And we did a bunch of touring and we won a bunch of this and that and the others and all this sort of stuff. And so I was on that creative path. 
And the interesting thing about it is all credit to my mother, Jackie, while they didn't diagnose these things while I was in school, my mother had an intuitive understanding that these grades I was getting made no sense. And so she kept trying to change me, but mostly change the environment I was in. And she found a school in Montreal, Andrea, public school. We didn't have any money when we grew up for. I was like delivered newspapers from the time I was uh, 10, single mother. I mean, it's a very common story. And so she found a public school where 50% of the curriculum was music, art, and drama. And what happened in a very real way for me was as the world's primarily of math and reading and science and all of that, where the doors were literally shutting and I was getting Fs, I was able to find this other one. And this public school had wonderful teachers in these areas. And so I got to be in plays and I got to learn to play the saxophone and I got to be in the choir and then I got to do solo singing and then I got to do more music, uh, more instruments. And then I got, you know, the lead in the play and on and on and on. And so as the traditional education world was collapsing on me, this whole other creative world was opening up on me. And I became, I had a domain where I was successful at the exact same time where I had the traditional educational domain where I was literally failing. And I began failing in grade four and failed all the way until I was 18 and got thrown out. As you well know, being in the field that you're in, when the world tells a child that they're stupid, bad and wrong and that they don't fit and there's no place that that child can find or make, bad things happen. So I think that's an important thing to underscore. So working as an orderly and I kind of have this aha. Well, I could shave guys balls for a living or I could start a company. And I had a friend named Jack and he had gone to work for a small software startup. The personal computer was just taking off. I knew very little about any of this shit. And uh, as I was struggling, he came and said to me, you know, I don't like working for this little software company, but I have an idea. And you're the right guy to help me start this company. Let's go in and be partners and start a company doing custom development and training and programming and the like in personal computers because these things are exploding and nobody knows how to use them. So how were you the right guy? Somebody who played guitar, sung, you know, or acted in, in plays and shaved guys' balls. So other people have to sort of assess this, but I was entrepreneurial from the time I was born pretty much. And so yeah, I managed our bands. You know, I did all that sort of sort of stuff. I had a I launched a little newspaper in school, and always had a paper route. And then my paper route customers became babysitting customers. And I understood, oh well, if you treat customers really well, then that leads to more business. And I became friends with a lot of the parents and kids that I babysat for, and that became a wonderful contributor to my life. And you know, so I sort of got very early this understanding of well. You serve people well, good things happen for you. And the more you serve people well, actually beyond just the economics of it, you know, it changes your life. And so I had that experience as a very, very young kid. And so I think what Jack understood was, as my grandmother May used to say, I've kissed the Blarney Stone. So Jack was like, look, I'll they said the, the same thing to me. My grandparents said that, that I kissed the Blarney Stone too. And are you like me? Are you the kind of person that you could be standing in an airport when we used to do that or, or, or anywhere. And all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and they just start talking to you. No, I'm the one that comes up to them and starts uh, talking to them. Well, I'm not that person. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm a bizarre, what people call it, introverted extrovert. 
So I'm not going to come up to you. But if you come up to me, I'm going to be very welcoming and talk to you anyway. And so bottom line is Jack thought I could sell and market the business and he would handle the technical stuff. And away we went. And that's what we did. And so for me, and I think this is something that is lost a lot in the entrepreneurial discussion and in the career discussion. There are many, many people for whom entrepreneurship is a way up in the world. And that's great. If you're Mark Zuckerberg or you're Bill Gates and you're at Harvard and you're writing some carbodingulator and you come to Sand Hill Road here in Silicon Valley and my friends at Sequoia give you a couple hundred million dollars and you build a great thing and you go public and you're on the cover of Time Magazine, God bless you. For many of us, however, entrepreneurship is not just a way up, it's a way out. And as somebody who started with no education, no relationships, no experience, no nothing, it's an extraordinary thing that we live in a part of the world where you can start at 18 with literally nothing. And this is a big distinction, I think, for people. Make your own place in the world. A lot of what we get taught in education particularly when we're younger, is what we're doing is finding our place. Well, there are many of us for whom there is no place. And when there's no place for you and you're 18 years old and you think there's more for you as, as laudable a career as, as being an orderly is, and it is. If you're a frontline healthcare worker, in my opinion, you're an angel. But there was more for me than that. I wanted to make a bigger difference than that. And so I got busy. And I think this is something that gets lost a lot today with the construction of the game in our world is all about finding your place. Even look at how we talk. I fell in love. Well, that's a dumb way of talking. You should jump in love, right? I fell into the right job. Well, my life, everything in my life today is 100% of my own design, all of it. Now, there are things that happen in our lives we have no control over, horrible things that can happen. And, and that great. has also happened to me in and my great. life. Yeah. However, where I live, who I live with, what I do all day, every day, the people I spend time with, the places I spend time in, all of that stuff is 100% uh, my design and the co-creation of the people that I love. So let me ask you, Chris, how... You started to learn marketing and where did you get your big break in marketing? So when I started, I didn't have anything, as I mentioned. And so what do you do when you start with nothing? Well, you learn from doing so experience. So you get busy doing, you seek out coaches and mentors, which I did. Uh, by the way, you'll love this. One of the things I heard consistently when I was young and starting out was, look, you need to go back to school. You need to get an MBA, you need to stop swearing, and you need to learn to play golf. I mean, it was, it was like a broken record. And every single time some very smart older person told me this, in my head, I would just look and smile, try to be a polite person. But in my head, I'm going, fuck you! Fuck you! Right? And by the way, none of those things were an option for me anyway. So it's not like it was a choice I made. Oh, yes, well, I'm just, I you know, I got in to Stanford MBA school. And I just chose not to go. That's what happened. And they've been recruiting me down at Pebble Beach nonstop. But it's just, you know, no, none of this shit was an option anyway. So of course, course I had to say those people, they, they mean very well and they exist <laughs> all over the place today. Many of them are parents sharing that advice with their children. 
But the truth is the best way that you can learn is by doing the best way. So how did you get that opportunity? I think I just understood that that advice was stupid and bad and wrong for me. And like I said, I didn't have any choice anyway. So it's not like I contemplated the other side, so to speak. So look, I did. So I learned by doing. I sought out mentors and I read. And as challenging as reading is for me, I read. And I read everything I could get my hands on that sort of landed for me. And there were a handful of books, business books early that made a giant difference for me. So if you're any kind of an entrepreneur, I think you should read Michael Gerber's The e It's a genius book. It's one of the most important business books ever. And the premise of the book is a very simple one. The E as in entrepreneurial myth. The premise of the book is a simple one, but a powerful one, which is the vast majority of small businesses fail and the vast majority of franchises work. And what Gerber posits is the reason for it is most entrepreneurs are what he calls a tactician having an entrepreneurial seizure. So I love to cook. Ta-da, I'm opening a restaurant. Whereas a franchise from the beginning is a business and they build a system based on processes that are repeatable and that scale. And so Gerber's insight is don't be a technician having an entrepreneurial seizure. Instead, build a scalable, repeatable business based on a set of processes that yield a particular set of results for customers and obviously revenue and margins and earnings and the like. And so that was a very powerful book for me, especially as, by the way, I put all my things together and I call it dysphoglia. <laughs> and so as a, dis, as a dysphoglic, it's also part of taking it back. It's like, oh yeah, oh, you assholes called me stupid. Fuck you. <laughs> anyway. And so that was a great insight for me because it helped me get myself organized. It helped me understand that I can't just business and life for that matter is not always freeform jazz. There's a time for jamming in freeform jazz, but if you want to have a repeatable, scalable business, Gerber's right. So that was a big one for me. And then there's a whole bunch in marketing that we can talk about if you like, but that was like, as a, a struggling entrepreneur, that one set off a big like, light bulb for me. So do you remember your first move kind of outside the norm in terms of marketing? How did you get your boss's attention, your supervisor's support to maybe do a little freeform jazz, to do something different from what had been done before? So the real answer is I didn't have a boss. Ever? Well, no, I ultimately did, of course. But in the beginning, I didn't. And there's an expression that I love, and it goes like this. Position yourself or be positioned. I never let myself be positioned by somebody else. Another way to think about it is, fuck this, start at the bottom and work to the top. That's insane. Start at the top. So I started at 18, a company. Ultimately, that company failed. Uh, and so I was 21 years old in a brand new marriage. There was a recession going on. Uh, jobs were hard to come by. And my first company had failed. And as you know, I had no education, no nothing. But what I did have at that point was I had positioned myself. I became known in the technology field in Montreal, where I was living at the time. And to some degree, I made relationships in the technology industry across the country. I knew a lot of people in Toronto and Vancouver and the like. And so as our business was failing, we made the decision to do the honorable thing, which was number one, we were going to fucking pay everybody we owed money to, no matter how long it took. We were not going to go bankrupt. 
we're going to go out of business. There's a difference between going bankrupt and going out of business. So Jack and I cut the debt in half and we agreed we were going to pay everybody off. And we did. In my case, I paid everybody off in 12 months. And there was a bank manager named Ron Terenzio at the Royal uh, Bank of Canada who gave me a loan that helped me pay some of it off. And then I paid Ron off. Anyway, so that was the first thing. The second thing was we were going to, because we had made a commitment to do this honorably, we were going to own our failure. So we called everybody. We called every client. We called every business partner we had. Of course, all the people who were working with and for us. And we told them what's up. So during one of those calls, I called a guy who was an entrepreneur in the tech industry who we had done a bunch of work with named Bill Walker. And he was probably in his 50s at the time. And I told him what was up. And he said, oh, that's terrible, Chris, and this and that. But he said, look, I'm just on my way to go to vacation to Florida for a week. What are you going to do? And I said, Bill, honestly, I have no, I have no fucking clue what I'm going to do. And I said, okay, great. I have a job for you. I've just started a new company and I want you to be our head of sales and marketing. Don't take a new job. I'll be back in a week and let's talk. And he gave me that opportunity. And so I joined the startup as a second employee with another person that he put in kind of the, the president CEO job. And away we went and we built from the ground up a software distribution company that went on to be quite successful. And that's the, my path from that point forward. I've never interacted with a head. I've never been placed in a job by a headhunter. I've never applied for a job in my life. I think the second you apply for a job, you're finished. You're finished. Once you're a candidate, you fucked yourself. And so the question for people, particularly those of us who are making our place in the world, is let's answer the question, how do we make our place in the world? And one of the answers to that question is position yourself or be positioned. And because even though I had failed, I was positioned as an entrepreneur. I was positioned as somebody who could create things, who could make things happen from nothing. Well, it turns out, even if you're a failure in that, when an older entrepreneur recognizes in you things that he or she, in this case, he sees in themselves, they say, hey, I can tap into this kid to help me build this business. And I'm going to mentor this kid. And that happened to me over and over and over again. And the number of people who have thrown down a rope to me, if I were to sit here with you, Andrea, and go through the list, you would get tired very quickly because I am some, you know, I hear this expression all the time. Oh, it must feel great to be a self-made man. And I understand what people mean when they say that. And it's a very nice compliment. And I do feel very proud of myself. However, I'm the furthest thing from being self-made. And so I think being a creator, being somebody who wants to bring new things to the world, being somebody who wants to make a difference in the world and being very thoughtful, proactive, what, I, what you might call thoughtfully aggressive about this. If you get out in the world and you start creating and then from the things that you create, you deliver real value for people, that ultimately does get recognized. I want to talk with you more about the marketing piece, but I want to pick up, Chris, on the mentors. Because there you were, a young kid from maybe the other side of the tracks in Montreal, single mom, dropped out of school. How did you find these amazing mentors who were able to teach you? Well, there's no big secret. You have to just get out in the world. So a couple ways. Number one, my dad was on the ski patrol and he taught me to ski. And I grew up skiing with him and the ski patrollers. Well, guess what? There's a lot of interesting people on the ski patrol. It's a volunteer thing. There are professional patrollers, but in our case, the vast majority were, were, were volunteers. 
And most of them were very uh, fascinating and, and powerful and successful and wonderful people who in all sorts of fields, right? And so amongst that group who became friends with my dad over years, who watched me grow up skiing and helped me ski. And, you know, I would go to the ski patrol shack and help them get ready and you know, all that stuff. Like, like you do when you're a kid and you're hanging around your parent, right? And your parents dragging you to, I'll put it in air quotes, work. And so there were a handful of those folks who were exceedingly kind to me. One in particular named Doug McCullough, who was an entrepreneur who happened to be in the tech field. And one of the things that he did for me that was amazing was at 18, 19 years old, he treated me like a real person. He took me seriously. He didn't treat me like the 11-year-old boy that he met. And that was wonderful. So A, we all have some kind of a relationship with somebody somewhere. Look for it. Find your, uh, we just wrote a, a, a category pirates about this. Uh, about YOLO, you know, how to, how to create your own life, right? Find your Archimedes. There's somebody who will be a lever for you, right? And in my case, there were many. That's just one example. Another thing I did, you and I are, you know, the same vintage. So you, like me, remember this thing called the phone book. And now it's called LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. So I would sit there with the yellow pages in front of my little personal computer clone my little phone and I would cold call and I cold called my ass off to try to drum up business for our little company that we were starting. Well, just like anybody who's had any experience cold call selling, you know what happens. People hang up on you and it's, it's not exactly the funnest way to make a living. However, I didn't give a fuck. I was, I was, there was no part of me that was taking any kind of a no from life. So I just kept going. Well, guess what? If you're a smart person, if you apply yourself, if you're creative, if you're focused on delivering value for others, sooner or later, you create a break. And so before you know it, we were doing business with Air Canada and most of the major banks in Canada. And because we were in the tech industry, we had created relationships and partnerships with computer software companies, other computer training and development companies, things that are called VARs, value-added resellers and SI systems, in integrators, these kinds of things. So we found a way, Jack and I found our way into an ecosystem, right? And you begin to build relationships in that ecosystem. And then all of a sudden you get a phone call from somebody at a software company who you're, you've been doing business with. And they say, hey, we've got this customer who just bought our software and they really need help. Can you help them? And now you're building a referral network and so forth and so on. And so Really, it started with leveraging a couple of my dad's friends from the ski patrol and the phone book. Fantastic. And I really mean it. Today it is LinkedIn. And that is what networking is all about. And informational interviews, asking people like what Chris and I are doing right now, where I'm learning about his life, his career, getting his advice. This is what you can be doing just by going on LinkedIn and, and using a little uh, creativity to reach out to and courage to reach out to people you don't know. So we're, here we are. It's 11 o'clock. I'm just saying this to you as an aside. Are you okay with continuing to talk? You're good. Okay. Well, I could talk to you for the rest of my life. I, okay. I can listen to you read me Wikipedia. I love your voice. Oh, well, I was going to say the same thing to you, Chris. Our listeners are too young to appreciate the name Charles Osgood. But when I was listening to oh, wow. your podcast, I thought, wow, Chris, you have a Charles Osgood-like 
voice. I mean, you you wow. have such a gravelly, I don't want to say pirate-like, but it could be. <laughs> it could be with the right R, you know. You definitely could be, but you just have, you have a voice that fills the silence. You really do. Beautiful voice. Thank you, Andrea. And it's it's interesting, of course, our voice changes over the years, as does everything uh, with our, our physical life. And I have earned this voice. Yeah, this voice didn't come easy. Lots of whiskey. Well, a lot of whiskey and a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of unpacked Samsonites. And at least in my case, I earned this voice. <laughs> so let's unpack a bit more about marketing, because I do hear you that you made your own opportunities and you followed some mentors into entrepreneurial ventures, but not everyone listening wants to be an entrepreneur. Some may just want to, and I don't mean to diminish this, but they may not have that spirit to go out and start their own thing, but they are really interested in the world of marketing And frankly, I do think there's tremendous value in going into an established company where you will learn best practices. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to learn them from a Chris Lockhead. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to learn from another great. What advice do you have, Chris, for those who may not want to go out on their own? How can they get into a good environment to learn marketing? So the first thing is, if you're not an entrepreneur, that's okay. I have lots of friends who are people I love who aren't entrepreneurs. That said, what I would encourage you to think about is even if you're not going to start a company, even if you're not going to go solo and go YOLO, so to speak, be entrepreneurial. The most natural state for a human being is a state of creation. And fundamentally, what an entrepreneur is, is a person who creates something new that creates value for others. And you may work inside a company for the rest of your life. That's okay. I get that. There's a very good reason to have a a job. And I have no pejorative feeling about that. I work for people. I started as an entrepreneur. I ended up becoming a three-time CMO. In each of those cases, I had a boss who was the CEO of the company. It's fine. But I would encourage you be entrepreneurial. And you are entrepreneurial whether you want to get it or not. If you spent any time around a child, spend time around a three-year-old or a five-year-old, the natural state of being for human beings is highly energetic, highly generative, and highly creative. That's what we all want in our careers. So and give us an example. Want- give us an example. So you have an associate marketing position. Here's that person, Chris, you've just given them. I mean, let's, you, you wouldn't be the one, they wouldn't be your direct report, but just for the sake of this example. Well, I hired a lot of these people. I know exactly what you, you hired mean. Them. I, uh, and, so, I, and I continue to look for these people today. So you've given them five things to do. What does it look like to you to be entrepreneurial? So the first thing is there are people who make an unconscious decision, an undiscussed decision, an unacknowledged decision to accept the way that it is. We get taught to fit in, we get taught to play by the rules, and we get taught to accept the way that it is. I believe that marketing is the most important profession ever, and I'll tell you why. Everything is the way that it is 
because somebody changed the way that it was. Look at what we have going on right now with the vaccines in America. That's a marketing problem. We shouldn't have called them vaccines. We should have called them something else. If we'd called that thing a patriot booster, we might not have the problem we're having right now. So marketing fundamentally, when done by the legends, is about moving the world from the way it is to the way the marketer, the entrepreneur wants it to be. And you can be the greatest scientist, you can be the greatest artist, you can be the greatest inventor, you can be the greatest doctor, you can be the greatest fill in the blank. And your ability to make a difference is a function of your ability to move the world in the direction you want it to go. And the more you can move the world in that direction, the bigger the difference you'll make. You call it languaging. It's called languaging, the strategic use of language to change the future. And so the legendary marketers change the world. See, Henry Ford can't make a difference unless he can explain to you what the difference is. You and I don't know Picasso's name because he was a great painter. Picasso was not a great painter. Picasso was a different painter. And what made Picasso Picasso was he was uncomparable to anything that came before. And so he was not an impressionist and he wasn't a realist or a this, this or a that this. Well, first of all, when he first starts painting, he's just painting pretty pictures. Nothing happens in his career. He's just another person painting pictures. Then he starts fucking around with bright colors, uh, rectangles and squares. He takes the boob, he sticks it on the ear. He does all this stuff. And all of a sudden people go, what's that? He makes them stop. And most people go, this looks like the work of a drunken eight-year-old. And Picasso says, that's where you're wrong. It's a new kind of art, a new category of art, and it's called cubism. And you can't compare it to realism. And if you go right now and you look at his Wikipedia page in the first or second line, you'll see a line that says something like, and he's the creator or the godfather or one of the pioneers of cubism. And so the big aha here is the people that you and I respect and admire the most are the ones that break and take new ground. There's no cover band in the world that's famous. I don't care how great your cover of that Led Zeppelin song is, no one's going to give a fuck. And so in life and in business and for sure in marketing, what we're doing is we're bringing the new, we're bringing the different. And if you want to have a legendary career, as far as I'm concerned, you want to work on things that are exponential and you want to be on a team that is bringing the exponential to the world because everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. And legendary innovations cannot speak for themselves. Without marketing, people won't get it. And that's why I say marketing is the most important profession in the world. Our failure as a country marketing the vaccine is going to end up killing over a million people unneedlessly. So I love all of that, but I can see that for a 22, 23, 24 year old, that would be intimidating as I would be a deer in a headlights. What does that look like for a 22 or 23 or 24 year old even? How can they be different and yet do the job 
to the best of their abilities and stand out from the crowd, Chris? Okay. So let me give you two very practical things. One that's kind of more strategic and one that's very specific. Go do now. The strategic one is this. Most people are fucked before they start. And here's why. Most people, when they have a goal, their mindset is, goes like this. Let's say uh, I'm starting my career in marketing and I have an objective that 15 years into my career, I'd like to be a chief marketing officer. And maybe, maybe I'm right now I'm trying to get an intern job in marketing, my first job in marketing. And I have this outrageous goal. 15 years from now, I'd like to be the head of marketing of a company that matters. Okay, great. What most people do is the following. They say, well, here I am. Maybe I'm 25 years old. What do I need to do by age 40 to get to my goal? And so in our minds, we're in the present, looking to the future. We see these giant, it's not even a mountain, it's a fucking mountain range. It might as well be farting our way to space and back. And we go, how the fuck am I going to get from here to there? Well, if you listen to all the good bullshit, which is garbage, well, you got to set your goals and you got to build your plan. You got to go step by step and you work your way toward your goal. These are pay attention to languaging, work your way toward your goal. That's the way most people do it. I think that's fucked. Here's the mindset. You want to be a CMO? If you were the CMO of a legendary company right now, what would you do? Do that. And I'll share with you a quick story about this. Before the Williams sisters, the greatest female tennis player of all time was named Martina Navratilova. She's an extraordinary woman who I've admired the vast majority of my life. And when she retired, she went on Larry King Live. And she had this wonderful conversation with Larry. One of the questions Larry asked her was, what did it feel like to win Wimbledon for the first time? And she tells her, oh, it felt great, and this and that and the other. And as she completes the answer around how it felt, she looks Larry in the eye and she says, but you know what? I knew exactly how it was going to feel. Because I've been winning Wimbledon in my mind since I was four. So the aha here is to do legendary things. We don't situate our mindset in the present, looking forward at all of the obstacles. We put our mind, we locate ourselves in the future of our choosing. And we pull the present to that future. And so said simply, if you want to win Wimbledon, act today like a Wimbledon champion. What does a Wimbledon champion do? How much sleep does a Wimbledon champion get? What does a Wimbledon champion eat? How much stretching does a Wimbledon champion do? How much water does a Wimbledon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because the way you win Wimbledon is you start winning it when you're four. And then you win it when you're 26 or however old Martina was. And so my point is this. Situate yourself in the future. Behave like it's already happened. And pull the present to the future of your choosing. It's a very different mindset. So that's at the high level. Then I'm going to get to a very, ta very tactical thing, how you actually go do that in your job tomorrow. But before I do that, thoughts, comments, questions, ideas on what I just said? Nope. Okay. I'm all ears. So here's the tactical. If you have a job today, if you don't, we can talk about that. But let's say you have a job today. Let's say you're a marketing intern or you're you know, fairly new in marketing. Go to your boss and say, what are the three most strategic value-creating initiatives or projects going on right now in marketing. I would like to be on one of those. And I don't care what you ask me to do. I will be the toilet cleaner on the group that is doing one of the most strategic and important value added growth oriented things in this company. I don't care what it is. I'll get lunch. 
whatever it is, I'll do whatever it is. I want to be on the team that is working on one of the things that our leadership says is, is the most important for the future of our company. Get on that. And then every day, ask yourself, if I was legendary, what would I do now? And if you do that, you will be being who you want to become. And the truth is, most of us, it's been true in my entire career, get the job that we've already been being and doing for quite some time. And so go figure out what those three strategic initiatives are and do whatever it takes to get on one of those initiatives, be on that project team. And then once you're there, be fucking legendary, be fucking undeniable. Can I add a little bit to it just from my experience? And I would love it. Yes, (laughs) because I, I feel like what you've given there is just fantastic advice. And I would also say, listen to what's going on in the room. Listen to those conversations. Listen to the questions that people are asking. Watch and absorb. Don't be so in your own head about being legendary that you are not taking in what is happening around you because you will be able to replicate that. Presumably, these are smart people in the room. They're not smarter than you. They just have more experience than you do. You learn by watching really good people do, and then you add your legendary piece. You absorb it, you digest it. And then without being super gross here, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk about the digestive process, but (laughs) really you give birth then to the 2.0. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. I think listening is the most underrated skill in humanity, never mind in your career. And I was so fucking terrible at it as a young man when I realized that I was an F in listening. And that what I considered listening was actually not listening at all. It was called waiting to talk because what most people are doing is waiting to talk. And that's what I was doing. I literally had to teach myself to bite my fucking tongue. And I literally did it like this. Only I didn't keep my mouth open. I would literally go into a meeting and go, shut up, Lockhead. And I didn't bite my tongue, it's up my mouth and go, mm, mm-hmm, mm. And there's a thing that most people don't realize. The more they talk, the more we learn. And most people don't like the silence. So if somebody says something, rather than going, oh, let me tell my story about this fucking thing that I want to tell. No, no, we don't do that. We bite, we literally bite our tongue. Mm -hmm. And we look at the other person and go, just try this. Mm." Or the person will keep talking. Or you can ask, is there anything else? You've done some homework. It's my favorite question, as you might know. So there's two kinds, at a high level, there's two kinds of questions. If you, if you go to sales school, you learn this. There's what we call an open probe and a closed probe. I'm not telling you anything you don't know as a journalist. Journalists learn this right away, right? When we ask a closed probe, what did you have for breakfast this morning, Andrea? I don't eat breakfast. I do intermittent fasting. Great. I got a short answer. You told me what happened, right? If I say to you, Andrea, tell me about your podcast. That's an open question. And of course, the obvious is, When we ask a closed question, we get a short answer. And when we ask an open question, we tend to get a very big, long answer. And so most of us, myself included, ask too many closed questions. And so one of the remedies to that 
is there's a natural point where either a conversation feels like it's about to end or a part of a conversation is about to end. And we're going to move to a different part of the conversation in that situation. That's where I love to use the question. Is there anything else? Cause there always fucking is always. And it is often the most important thing. I'll never forget when my grandmother, she'd broken her hip and she was in the hospital. It was a huge crisis and we couldn't get a hold of the fucking surgeon and we didn't know what was going on. And finally I said, enough's enough. And I did what I always do, which is I took matters in my own hands. And I said, listen, I need to talk to my grandmother's fucking surgeon right now, where there's going to be a really big problem here. So I talked to Dr. Asshole and my uncle Jim is standing next to me. This guy has the bedside manner of a fucking criminal. So, and, he, and he's like, he's irritated. How dare we ask what they're going to do to our, you know, 80 plus year old loved one. So I'm dragging out of him what's going to happen on the table. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. We get to the end of it. He clearly wants us to fuck off. He's barely looking at us in the eye. He's dismissive. I want to smash him. By the way, I haven't been in a fight since I was 12 outside of a boxing gym. So we do all that. He's trying to get rid of us. The conversation's clearly ended. My uncle Jim is not doing well because the description of what's going to happen to my grandmother is not great. And then I said to him, Hey, Dr. Asshole, is there anything else? And he says in his complete asshole way, yeah, there's about a 40% chance she'll die on the table. And it was like somebody punched both my uncle and I in the chest. And had I not asked the question, we wouldn't have understood the level of seriousness that we were dealing with here. And while she did not die on the table, she died a few weeks thereafter. And so my point is, regardless of the situation, I think before completing any kind of a communication with anybody, the most powerful thing we can ask is, is there anything else? Before we get to the final two questions that I try to ask all of my guests, Chris, I know that our listeners would be incredibly grateful to get your best advice to them. If you were in their shoes today and you had just finished school and you wanted to get into marketing in a company, where would you advise them to go? What type of company would you advise them in terms of like the qualities, maybe even the name of a place where you think it would be a great first job? So first of all, never go through the front door. The minute you make yourself a candidate, you're fucked. Because when you're a candidate, you're like a muscle man wearing a bikini with a number on it. Legends never play a comparison game. Never. They force a choice, not a comparison. So for example, in my career, when I was up for CMO jobs, people would call me and say, well, we're looking for a CMO. We're getting ready to go public. We're doing this. We're doing that, whatever. And we heard you're the guy and this and that and the other. And I'd say, okay, well, you know, what are you, what are you looking for in a CMO? And they'd say, oh, well, you know, somebody who can do the branding and who can do the lead gen and who can help drive revenue and can do product marketing and who can make sure we have a great website and make sure we, all the tactical things in marketing. And my response always was, well, yeah, I can do those things. But if that's what you're looking for, you don't need me. Good luck. The minute you pull yourself out of a situation, people's minds explode. They go, what are you talking about? They go, well, look, I, I can do all those things. That's not my superpower. So it doesn't sound like you, you need what I do. So I'm out, which invariably leads to the following question, because they've rarely had anybody say this to them before. Well, what's your superpower? Oh, 
I, I don't think you need it because you just told me what you needed and it's not what you need. But I'll tell you, you see, Susan, in the life of every company, there's an 18 to 24 month period where there's an epic battle for who's going to win this category. And as you know, Susan, in the tech industry, the company that wins the category battle earns two thirds of the economics and goes on to be a great company. I specialize in winning that battle. I love that. But how can a 22 year old say that? Listen, I was the head of marketing for a publicly traded company at 27. A 22 year old can say that. Now, maybe not as the head of marketing, but we have to be able to, and I use this word very much on purpose, differentiate ourselves. And the root word of differentiation is different. So the minute you're a candidate, they have a spec. They are the judges in a bikini contest and you're submitting yourself to their judging criteria. They set the context. And actually, if there's one thing I would love everybody to learn, which is there are people who accept the context and there are people who go, I'm not so fucking sure. So one of my favorite expressions is, Hey, Andrea, I'm not sure we're having the right conversation. I just had this recently. I can tell you a story about this with a company going public if you care. But to get back to the young person, take control of the situation. What do you want to do? What do you want to learn? And what difference do you think you can make? So if we go back to the young person who says, I want to be on one of these three strategic projects. You know, listen, man, you're 23 years old. You can't find your ass with both hands. You're real cute and everything. But like, no. We're going to leave you over here in the corner. You say, hey, listen, you don't want me in the corner. I am one of the highest potential people you will ever fucking meet. And that's why you want to put me on your high impact project. Because what I lack in experience, what I lack in age, I will make up for with enthusiasm, with commitment, with a desire to produce legendary results and learn like nobody you've ever seen in your fucking career. So I'm not going to go sit in that corner and work on that nose picky bullshit. And if you won't put me on those things, there's 9 million open jobs in the United States right now. I'm going to go get one where they get it. And here's the aha. I just had this conversation with a 33 year old genius whiz young executive in finance who I love and admire very much. So she gives me a call and she says, uh, they're recruiting me for a new VP job at, a, at another company. My old boss, the CFO has gone to this company. And they're getting ready to go public. And I need your help in kind of negotiating my package and what you think and this and that and the other. So we go through all of it and we get to the numbers on her package. We'll call her Susan. And I said to her, Susan, the economics on your package are off by like 100%. This needs to get doubled. She's like, well, I'm only 32, 33, whatever it is. And I don't have any experience taking a company public. How can you possibly say I'm worth twice what they're offering me? And I said to her, well, are they a growth investor or are they a value investor? You see, value investors bet on the past. They hire people for their prior performance and they value them as such. You're not that. And if they wanted that, they wouldn't be talking to you. They are hiring a potential, not a prior performance. And guess what? That makes them, if they were a Wall Street investor, a growth investor, a potential investor. They're like a venture capitalist. They're betting on a different future. I had a conversation yesterday with a guy who's older than me, who's done a hundred IPOs. They weren't talking to that guy. They were talking to her. So I said, they're not looking to you. 
for your past. They're investing in your potential. And as a result, they should pay for it. And she didn't quite get double, but she got a meaningful bump up from where she was. And so the big aha here is, particularly for young people, only, only work with people who are going to invest in your potential. And as you start to look for work, only start or join a company that is worthy of your talent. Here's the big mental shift. They need you more than you need them. That's the mindset. Now, look, we all need to have our humble pie and all that, and we can all learn things and all that. I'm not talking about being an arrogant shithead, but what I am talking about is taking control over your life and your career and standing for who you are. And if you don't have a walkaway position, you have no position. So have a walkaway position and understand this. If you're 23 years old, 26 years old, 30 years old, and you're in a discussion about a job, they're not hiring past performance. Because if they were, they would hire this wanker I talked to yesterday who's done it a hundred times and is fucking terrible compared to my friend who's 32 or 33 years old, who now has done the IPO and done a legendary job. Oh, by the way, and delivered a baby. And oh, by the way, got a raise. She took the job to take the company public as a VP in finance as she was four months fucking pregnant and she still took them public. Okay. And this idiot I talked to yesterday who's done this a thousand times. He's the one who can't find his ass with both hands. And so my point is be very careful. Are we looking to talk to people who are betting on future potential or want to buy past performance? And if you are a young person and you're talking to somebody who's saying, well, you know, Susie, we can't hire, we can't pay you that because you've never done this before. And say, well, listen, Jimmy, we've been talking for 15 minutes. We were planning on talking for an hour. You can have the next 45 minutes back because I'm not a been there, done that person. And so I'm out of here. Take control of the situation. Position yourself or be positioned. Mm. Amazing advice, my friends. So here we go, Chris, two final time for coffee questions that I try to ask all of my guests. And the first one is if you could share a time in your professional life when you failed, you've already alluded to the first entrepreneurial endeavor that after a few years did not work out. Maybe there are others. The most important point here is how you persevered. And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process, because so often what we show the public, what we show young people when they scroll our LinkedIn feeds are all of our successes, but they don't see all the broken rungs in the ladder that we climbed to get to the top. And all of us have broken rungs. So one of my favorite expressions is you can't be a legend without being a loser. And uh, I've had massive, horrible public failures. My first business was a failure. And I've had many since then. When I was the head of marketing at Mercury, we were a billion dollar company. We were on fire. And then without getting into all the details, unless you want me to, we got investigated for accounting fraud by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And as a result, we ended up firing our CEO, CFO, and general counsel on the same day. We were a public company. Our stock was trading at about 45 bucks a share, and it went down to 20 bucks a share. And it was November 11th, which means it was the fourth quarter. And if you know anything about the technology business and the software business, what you know is 
a disproportionate amount of that company's annual revenue tends to happen in the fourth quarter. And so with less than half a quarter in front of us, we fired everybody, our stock tanked. Anyway, the short story is we turned the company around rapidly. We sold the company for 55 bucks a share nine months later, which was approximately $5 billion to Hewlett Packard. And I can tell you how we did that. But the mindset thing is what matters. So as I shared with you, math was over for me in grade three. My favorite equation ever is results do not equal no results plus an excuse. Results do not equal no results plus an excuse. And so here's what happened for me. When I was about 17 and my education was being dismantled in front of me and all that shit was going on. I remember exactly where I was. I was on a street in Montreal called Cote d'Asie. It was February. It was cold as fuck. And I was waiting for a bus. And I was in the pit of despair. And I had an angel and a devil on either shoulder. And the angel was my grandfather saying, you're the bestest boy in the world. And the devil was my mother saying, don't grow up to be a bum. Don't be a bum. Don't, don't, don't be a bum. She was terrified. I was failing out of school. You know, you're a mother. And so... I had a very a sort of pivotal moment waiting for that bus. And I decided who I was going to be. I decided I was going to be the man my grandfather said I was. And I was not going to disappoint my mother ever. And I sort of shut that door. And then I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful, period, full stop. So in those moments of failure, in those moments, we have a, we, we made up think languaging. We made up a nice word around here to make it sound better than it is. We call it losery. When there's a shit ton of losery going on, you have to decide before the losery starts who you're going to be when the shit hits the fan. Everybody's great when it's great. Everybody's great when it's great. When it matters is when the stock gets cut in half. When it matters is when you're 21 years old and your business fails and your new wife is looking at you and you can't pay the rent, et cetera, et cetera. So I would encourage people to make the decision before the losery starts. Who are you going to be? Are you somebody for whom results equal results? Because I will tell you, I have seen titans of Silicon Valley, names you know, melt like snow in July, that are nutless wonders, that act out of fear, that have a persona of being the person you want in the foxhole, but in point of fact, they're pussies and they run and they'll save their own ass as opposed to doing the right thing for the company. I've seen it a thousand times. Make a decision. Who are you? Are you who I can count on when there's bombs going off everywhere? Can we count on you to produce legendary results no matter what? No excuses. Today, everybody wants to be famous on social media and eh, followers and all that stupidity. And there's one of the dumbest things that is going on right now in business. And it's this term personal branding. Personal branding is for idiots and assholes. Because what personal branding has become is screaming, look at me, aren't I awesome on fucking LinkedIn and Twitter and shit. Okay. And, and because people say, oh, you can have a personal brand. You can have a personal brand. No, people are not fucking brands. They're people. And what you really want is a reputation for results. And if you achieve a reputation for results, when the shit's going down, you will have a legendary career. And so I would encourage people to make the decision. It's like my tattoo that we were talking about before we started. Hold fast. Hold fast is, I don't care how much water this boat's taken on. You can count on me. Be that person. And that's a decision. Greatness, legendary, is a fucking decision.
And to go back to dyslexia and dyspraxia is a controversial thing. Smart's a decision. I made a decision to be fucking smart. And courageous is a decision because courageous equals action in the face of fear. There can be no courage without fear and circumstance. And so courage is action in the face of grave circumstance. And you either decide to be that person or not. And I can tell you, I was teetering and I made the decision to be that person. And look, have I always been perfect? Absolutely not. Have I had massive moments of doubt and fear in, in, in moments of pain and suffering and challenge? Absolutely. Have I need to be bolstered and supported and be told you can do this champ by people who love me and support me in moments of tremendous, you know, adversarial moments? Of course, I've been that way. Of course, I felt weak like a little kid with no capability. Of course. But when you make that decision and you promise yourself that you're going to be that person, there's no going back. You always find a way, no matter how fearful you are. And so I would encourage people, be that person. Be the person that you love to admire. Be that person. Be a person that when you brush your teeth in the morning and you see that person in the mirror, you are honored and amazed by the person that you see brushing your fucking teeth. Be that person. And that's a decision. And when we make that decision and we commit to acting in alignment with results equal results, and no matter what comes through that door, I'm going to handle it and handle it I'm I. That's a mindset. That's a commitment. And if you're good to that commitment, you're going to have a very, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, different life. I love that. Oh my God. And I actually feel, Chris, that you answered the last question as well, which is if you could go back to the school of hard knocks when you were 18 and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think you just gave it. Yes. Wow. Well... Chris Lockhead, you are legendary. You absolutely are living, breathing out of every pore of your <laughs> of your being. I can I can feel it. Absolutely a hundred percent. I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee with several shots of whiskey in it with me and the T for C community are this has been just wonderful thank you so much the privilege is all mine thank you so much and thank you so much for the work that you do thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T for C and if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.